You just heard an excerpt from a piece called Pasakai. It's the final movement of the Huitième Ordre, or Eighth Order or Suite, from François Couperin's Livre de Clavecin, performed by Jory Vinegar on a new album on CD Records titled Lunique, Harpsichord Music of François Couperin. Every time we have a new release on CD Records, and this is our new release for April 2020, we have a new Classical Chicago podcast. And my guest on this podcast, which is number 35 in the series, is Jory Vinegar. I'm Jim Ginsburg, founder and president of Sadie Records, and Jory Vinegar is my guest on this podcast. Hi, Jory. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So let's get right into it. Starting with, even before we get to the album itself, a little of your history. We, of course, covered some of this on Classical Chicago podcast episode 28, which covered your previous album for Sadie of 20th Century Harpsichord Concertos. Just briefly, can you recap your history with the instrument, starting with how you picked it up at the Peabody Conservatory and how you made the transition from piano to harpsichord? I would say my history with the instrument started even before growing up as a young musician in the Chicago area. Of course, the harpsichord is not something which one saw currently or even which one now sees currently, but I was fascinated with the sound of this instrument and found myself taking records from the library, being fascinated when it would appear on some television show or another, etc. And when I went off to Peabody Conservatory, the very first thing I did, with no exaggeration, it was within the first hour of being at school, was to seek out the harpsichord professor and ask for lessons. Great. Since this album is of music of the great French Baroque composer François Couperin, can you talk a little bit of how and when you were first introduced to Couperin's music, both as a listener and then as a performer? I think on a certain level, both of those things may have happened simultaneously. I mean, I certainly was aware of who François Couperin was as a young musician, but this remained a kind of obscure reference as a young pianist. And I remember going to a harpsichord teacher in New York City, and the first thing was to begin learning from the very first ordre, the first big suite of pieces by François Couperin, and being confronted with this extraordinary, ornate, complex style. So I think my experience, both as listener and as performer, happened rather simultaneously. How long would you say you've wanted to record Couperin's music, and why did you choose this particular moment? I think... I've wanted just to perform more and more his music, so I don't necessarily think of every bit of repertoire I play as a possible recording opportunity, but these three suites, for a number of reasons, so the sixth, seventh, and eighth ordre, which is just another word for suites, they're in the second published book of keyboard music by François Couperin, these are works that I've come back to repeatedly over my career. I think they show such a distillation of Couperin's music. Each of the three suites has such a profoundly different character from the very pastoral quality of the sixth to this innocent quality, let's say, of the seventh, and then to this great French tragic noble quality of the eighth order. And finally, one day, I just felt the moment was right to record, and I called my friend Jim Ginsburg, sitting to my left, and asked if he was interested in this. Would you say, Jory, that you might have a special affinity for French repertoire? I should note that your recording of the complete Rameau music for harpsichord was nominated for a Grammy, and of course, you spent 25 years living in France. Yes. How, if at all, did that inform your playing? 
I think it informed my playing greatly on so many levels. My experience of French music is not only through the keyboards and learning music of François Couperin, his uncle Louis Couperin, equally fascinating, uh, Rameau, etc. I played over a great number of years with some of the best French Baroque orchestras, Les Musiciens de Louvre, with Marc Minkowski, William Christie's Les Arts Florissants, and experiencing not just the French solo repertoire, but orchestral music through the eyes and ears of these wonderful conductors and these orchestras gave me new insights to so many aspects of these pieces. So I feel that I've really lived with this music. I speak the language, obviously. So there is a very special affinity that I feel towards François Couperin, to French music in general. And, of course, you've already talked about the three entre or suites that are covered on the album in general terms. Can you talk a little bit about the pieces? These tend to be musical portraits and ha often have enigmatic titles. Yes, many of the titles are very difficult to explain. Some are impossible to explain. Others, I think the most famous one, Les Barricades Mysterieuses from the Sixth Order, which is probably the best-known single piece of Couperin's keyboard music, and nobody agrees on what this means. And I've even gotten somewhat violent letters from various, <laughs> always amateurs, but who will say, no, 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 you're wrong. It absolutely means this. And then another one says it absolutely <laughs> means that. And we just don't know. Couperin may have intended it to be enigmatic, and I actually believe he did. Well, I'm so glad you brought that piece up because it, in fact, is the first piece we're going to listen to. Before we do, our note writer, Julien Dubruc. Uh, Julien is my good friend, and he is a musicologist, and he works for the Centre de Musique Baroque de Versailles. And I encountered Julien during the time that he prepared a most impressive new edition of Jean-Philippe Rameau's Opera Ballet, Le Temple de la Gloire, this was produced by Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra in Berkeley, and Julien and the head of the Centre de Musique Baroque de Versailles, Benoit Dratwicki, came over to Berkeley to participate in this, and I've remained in close contact with Julien and thought that it would be interesting to have an article on these pieces and by Couperin through the eyes of somebody who has studied the subject rather more scientifically than I have. He notes that uh, this is an example of the style lutte. Yes. Can you explain what that means? So the style lutte or the style brisé, a broken style, uh, one and the same thing. It's a keyboard instrument, in this case harpsichord, emulating a strummed or lute-like or guitar-like style. So creating the impression of melody and so forth with broken harmonic patterns. And something else that's notable about this and some of the other pieces is that it exists entirely in the lower register. Is that something characteristic for Couperin in particular? It's something rather characteristic in a good deal of French Baroque music for the keyboard. One reason for this, there are many pieces. I don't believe that Les Barricades is necessarily one, but many works of keyboard music, be they by Couperin, be they by, for instance, Pancras Royer, who is a minor figure but much loved by harpsichordists, by Forqueret, who was himself a viola de gamba player. This is the essential word, viola de gamba. This is a very typical French color. The gamba plays always in the lower range. And many pieces, for instance, uh, although I don't believe this is on our listening list, in the seventh order, 
Les Delices, which is the final movement of Les Petits Âges, The Little Ages, imitates a duo of viola de gambas very, very clearly, and this will remain always within the lower half of the harpsichord, descending generally down to the lowest note of the instrument. So we have echoes of both lute and viola de gamba in this piece, and of course it is probably the most famous of Couperin's keyboard works. So let's hear now Les Barricades Mysterieuses, performed by Jory Vinegar. You just heard Les Barricades Mysterieuses, piece by François Couperin, from his CZM, or Sixth Ordre, for harpsichord, on a new album called L'Unique, harpsichord music of François Couperin, and the harpsichordist there, and on the whole album, of course, is my guest on this Classical Chicago podcast, Jory Vinegar. As we noted earlier, this album comprises three of the suites, or ordres, numbers six, seven, and eight. And the program notes to this album comment that these are genre pieces grouped into orders of all of the same tonality, alternately major and minor, and they specialize in musical portraiture, and we'll get to an example of that in just a moment. But what's interesting, I think, in particular about the sixth ordre is apparently its key was very unusual for the time. This is B-flat major and... Julien, in the notes, calls it an experimental tonality. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's interesting. 
When we speak of temperaments or tuning systems, needless to say, our modern system where we have the 12 semitones of the octave perfectly divided, this was clearly not the case in the Baroque. And varying tuning systems created different sweet keys, let's say. And I do believe Julien de Bruck is basically correct. Prior to François Couperin, we were not really seeing pieces in B-flat, although we can point out that the first partita of Bach, published in his first book of Klavierübung, is also, of course, B-flat major. We've seen the key before, but it does appear rather unusual at this time. Now, most of these character pieces involve people or types of people, but the example I would like to play, which is the concluding piece in the sixième ordre, is Le Moucheron, which in English would be the gnat, and I think is a great example of Couperin's sense of humor. Can you talk about this? Uh, Certainly. Hopefully, in this piece, Couperin is not in any way teasing any particular person, but the entire order really evokes a very pastoral setting. We have les bergeries, we have la commère, which is more or less the town gossip, the village gossip. And that itself is rather amusing. It's a very chattery piece. And finally, perhaps one of the less agreeable parts of farm life would be gnats. And so the moucheron is a very, very quick, buzzing little gigue. And I think it's particularly notable how the trills, especially at the end, migrate to the left Mm -hmm. hand rather than the right hand where you're expecting them, which make them sound particularly gnat-like to my ear. Natty, yes. Natty, I like that. (laughs) Let's hear Le Moucheron, the gnat, the concluding piece from Sixth Order for Harpsichord by François Couperin. just heard Le Moucheron, 
the last piece in Francois Couperin's sixth set of harpsichord pieces performed by Jory Vinegar from his new album on Sadie Records, L'Unique, harpsichord music of Francois Couperin. And if you like what you're hearing, please check out the album on sadierecords.org or wherever else music is sold. You can purchase the physical CD on our site, as well as places like Amazon and Archive Music. You can also stream the album once it's released on April 10th on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you like to listen to your music. And I hope after hearing some of these pieces, you'll want to check out the whole album. We're going to move on now to the seventh order, but first let's talk a little bit about Francois Couperin himself. Julien Dubruc's program notes open with a rather enigmatic comment which he attributes to Philippe Bosson. Yeah, Philippe Bosson, a very famous French writer on music. And if I'm not mistaken, I should probably look this up. I think he also wrote a very famous cookbook and may have grouped together recipes by musicians. And I am not sure if Philippe is still with us, uh, uh-huh. but very, very famous writer, especially on the French Baroque, but on music in general. Well, apparently he wrote about Francois Couperin, and I quote, there is nothing to say about his life. Can you expand on that nothingness? You know, this is interesting. I think even for a composer such as, say, Johann Sebastian Bach, who's more familiar to most listeners, in reality, we don't know a great deal about his personal life. We have the details. We know who he married, how many children. Because of letters, we're aware of some of his financial squabbles. But how much insight do we really have in the inner mind and private life of such a person. Not so much, and with Couperin, simply rather less. And yet at the same time, I don't find this particularly remarkable. He led a discreet life. He was highly respected. François Couperin is a member of a musical dynasty. The first very famous member of that is his uncle Louis Couperin, who died a few years before François was even born. Louis is the creator of what we would call the prélude non mesuré, unmeasured preludes, which once again, we've mentioned lute writing and gamba writing. The unmeasured preludes evoke lute improvisations. And Louis Couperin practically codified what became French keyboard style, developing through his nephew François. And François's nephew, Armand Louis, was a very, very, very popular musician in later Baroque Rococo France, beloved and left some wonderfully decadent harpsichord music as well. One of the last cries of French harpsichord music before the revolution. And how would you say Couperin's music compares to or differs from other French composers of his era, and how influential was he to future composers? François Couperin is enormously influential, so we can think, of course, of these somewhat, let's say, colorful incidences where both Debussy and Ravel were very inspired by Rameau, by Couperin, whether it's the elegance of the style which is evoked. I think even in Tombeau de Couperin of Ravel, this beautiful Folan movement so much evokes the Forlan from one of the Concerts Royaux, the Royal Concerts of Couperin. Bach tremendously admired Couperin's keyboard music. His wife copied many pieces, including uh, several pieces from the Sixth Order for her own use and for the use of the children. Couperin did seem to represent the very best and the very finest of what French keyboard composition could be. And most of his career, not all, but most, 
was consecrated to publishing keyboard suites, of which there are 27 spread over four published books. Bach, of course, published far fewer of his own keyboard works, where for Couperin, this was just a lifetime opus. And as far as the other French composers of the era, how would you say Couperin's music is different? It's incomparably more complex and more varied. Even Rameau, who of course is one of the true great composers of the Baroque era, the operatic music, the orchestral music, is of a novelty which defies belief occasionally in its modernity. And Couperin finds all of this richness, all of this imagination at the harpsichord. And I'm not sure that any other composer gets that close to what Couperin could accomplish. Well, let's move on to the seventh order. The sixth, as we discussed, consists of largely portraits of French pastoral life. Yes. And like the sixth, the seventh has eight pieces. Four of them are sort of a suite within a suite, Les Petits Âges. Can you talk about the role of these pieces in the whole suite? It's, for me, fascinating. Julien de Bruck in his notes doesn't go there. I feel that the seventh order is a kind of a portrait of life in general, and some of it has uh, Couperin's usual wit and playfulness. I feel that there is also an underlying tone of melancholy, and we begin the order with a beautiful little piece, yet again something which is designed to evoke Tuvio de Gamba's playing together. That's Le Menetou. This is the nickname of a young harpsichordist. I do not remember her real name. This may be on my notes, but a prodigy harpsichordist. So this already is something rather enfantine, rather childlike. Then the petisage, does it begin with la muse naissante? I don't remember. And so the birth, as it were, of the muse and going into finally the enfantine, so childhood, going to the adolescent, so a rather turbulent adolescent piece, and finally Les Delices, which could be a very sensual portrayal of life's pleasures. And after this rather long mini-suite within the suite, as you point out, we have two character pieces, La Basque and La Chazé, and then finally this quite extraordinary piece, Les Amusements, The Amusements, and If there's a playfulness to the piece, nonetheless, the fact that we have two parts of the piece, a first part, Les Amusements, is a style lutte in G major, but the second part with ostinato triplets is in G minor, and the work ends in G minor. It is not intended to return to the major to finish the suite in a kind of cheerful fashion. And I've always felt that in some way Les Amusements was also perhaps a metaphor even for death or the end. And this strange, beautiful, rather melancholic ending is something which I've always found absolutely compelling and enchanting. Well, I thought from this suite we might hear from Les Petits Âges, or the Little Ages, the third piece, L'Adolescente, because it has, like Les Barricades Mysterieuses, a very sonorous quality. And in the notes, Julien notes how it facetiously employs rhythmic equality in offbeats. I can certainly imagine how you could facetiously employ syncopation. How does one facetiously employ rhythmic equality? You may have to actually ask Julien this question. The piece plays with a number of different elements. First of all, 
unlike Les Barricades, it's a very melodic piece. We have something which could even sound, for instance, like a violin sonata type piece, so very melodic, right hand of the harpsichord accompanied by a left hand fulfilling its usual continual type of function. But there is a constant interchange of lombardic or snapped figures, equal figures, some rather amusing syncopations, which perhaps portray the turbulence of adolescence. Well, let's hear that then. This is L'Adolescent from Septième Audre for harpsichord of François Couperin, performed by Jory Vinegar. We just heard L'Adolescente, or The Adolescent, the third of four pieces in a suite called Les Petits Sages, or The Little Ages, which is part of a eight-movement suite, or Ordre, for harpsichord, by François Couperin. It's number seven in his series of 27 of these Ordres, arranged over four books of harpsichord pieces. It's from a new album on Sadie Records called L'Unique. Harpsichord music of François Couperin, performed by Jory Vinegar. And if you like what you hear, please check it out at sadierecords.org or wherever you like to purchase or stream or download your music. 
Now that we've heard two of the suites, before we get to the third, let's talk a little about the instrument that you're using Mm -hmm. and what makes it so appropriate to this repertoire. The instrument I'm using is my own instrument. It's a marvelous instrument created for me in 2012 by Tony Chinnery. Tony is a British-born builder of really the great school. His instruments are much admired throughout the world. They were played by Gustav Leonhardt, who is something of the king and god of the harpsichord revival. And my own teacher, Kenneth Gilbert, was associated with Tony Chinnery. I'm extremely pleased to have this instrument. It's copied on an instrument by Tascan, so a French instrument from approximately 1760, so somewhat anterior to the time of Couperin. The original instrument is in the Edinburgh Keyboard Collection. And the design of my instrument, which is very beautiful, and I think we see this on the cover of the record I'm playing with Rachel Barton Pine, it has very ornate Chinese-type decoration, which we call chinoiserie, of course. And those are very specifically designed after an instrument by Goujon existing in the Paris collection. So I would ask anybody, just look at my website, look at City's site, you'll easily find the instrument I'm referring to. And it's beautiful with extremely rich overtones. And this, I think, is very important for French music. As much as we would wish for a very precise sound, so much of this music, we spoke about the viola da gamba, we spoke about the lute, we want an instrument which creates resonance, which creates richness in the bass, etc. The album you mentioned with Rachel Barden Pine is the Bach Sonatas for Violin and Harpsichord. Yes, the six sonatas. We recorded this for you perhaps three years ago or so. A memorable moment for me and my harpsichord arrived from France really in time to do that recording. That was the first serious project I did in the United States with that instrument. And of course, that instrument was also used on your previous album of 20th century concertos for harpsichord with Scott Speck and the Chicago Philharmonic. That's obviously a very different use of the instrument. Why did you choose it for that album? It's one of the most beautiful instruments, frankly, in country, I dare say. So I just love my own instrument. It does have a full five-octave range. So even for much of the contemporary repertoire, it serves its purpose. Although uh, this was mostly due to timing, but for the final piece on that 20th Century album by Michael Nyman, we had a somewhat sturdier instrument built by our own local Paul Irvin a few years back. My instrument was not yet in Chicago, so I play my instrument for music by Walter Lee, by Ned Roram, and by Victor Calabese, the Czech composer. And all of these, part perhaps from some of the Roram, have a more delicate use of the harpsichord. I think my instrument sounds just wonderful on these, as does Paul Irvin's instrument for Michael Nyman, by the way. And how does the performance of early 18th century repertoire on the harpsichord differ from your approach to 20th and 21st century music? On a certain level, not at all. I try, I hope all musicians try, to serve the composer's wishes, to be aware of stylistic surroundings, to be aware of the world in which these pieces were composed. But even playing music of the 20th century and beyond, I'm attempting to find the same beauty of touch and articulation. So on a certain level, the fundamental approach is not differing at all. It's just the composer's wishes which are differing. Certainly, I would take far less liberty in playing a work by Victor Calabis than I might in 
Plain Coupon, where the entire record is predicated on various agogic liberties and timings. If you want to hear Jory talk more about that previous album of mid and late 20th century repertoire with other instruments, you can check out Classical Chicago podcast episode number 28, which was released in June of 2019. And you can find it on sadierecords.org on our podcast page. So I hope you'll want to check that out too. Well, to get back to the early 18th century, what impact would you say Couperin's music had on the development of the instrument in France? That's a great question. If we're talking about composers who influence an instrument's development, I would think first and foremost of Beethoven, who seems really single-handedly to have pushed the piano into something from very light, a sort of post-harpsichord instrument into something which begins to resemble the pianos we know today, I am not convinced that Couperin or Rameau or even these somewhat later composers genuinely pushed the harpsichord to be something it wasn't. We see simply that the range of the instrument expands very slightly under Couperin, and older instruments were given what is referred to as a ravalement, a change, a redoing, where old instruments were taken, the case was broken and enlarged, the soundboard expanded, and thus bringing an instrument which might have been uh, like Bach's instrument, four octaves and a half from the lowest G to a top D, all the way to five octaves, a low F, in many cases up to a top F, although in France it tends to stop at the top E. So beyond that, Couperin, even Rameau, are not looking to make the instrument more powerful or louder or to create any gadgets which might evoke the use of a greater dynamic palette. However, Couperin seems to have exploited every possible color variant within the instrument at that time. So moving on to now the huitième ordre, or eighth order, uh, for harpsichord pieces. Uh, each ordre is in its own tonality, as Joy just mentioned. The seventh is in G and actually alternates between the major and the minor. The sixth order, we heard, is only in B-flat major. The eighth order is actually entirely in B minor, and that must give it a very different kind of character. When I think of the eighth order of François Couperin, I immediately think of one of the other great B minor pieces of Baroque keyboard repertoire, which is the French overture of Bach, one of the pieces that he chose to publish in his second book of keyboard studies, so a very dark theatrical key. Couperin's Eighth Order would seem to be his final desire, his final effort to create something which resembles the classic French suite. In other words, we have an allemande. Actually, we have two. We have a slow noble allemande. We have a quick one. We have two courants. We have a marvelous sarabande, which gives its name to this album, L'Unique. And finally, the whole suite ends with this great passacaille, although I would note for sticklers, if you look at the published version, the final piece which appears is La Morinette, which is a kind of a second gigue. There is a tradition throughout much of France at this time to arrange the printing of published music in such a way to avoid page turns. Rameau actually kindly speaks of this in one of the suites. So for any performer 
who believes, for instance, that Rameau's great D minor, D major suite ends with these two tiny little pieces, La Boiteuse et Le Lardon. No, it ends with Les Cyclopes, uh, one of the great pieces of uh, French repertoire. And surely Couperin's Eighth Order absolutely is intended to end with this extraordinary Pasacaya, which is one of the tremendous, tremendous pieces of the entire Baroque keyboard repertoire. It's like nothing else. In mentioning all those different pieces, Jury, it's worth noting that this is the largest of the three suites on the album, both in terms of the number of movements, 10 instead of 8, as is the case with 6 and 7, and overall playing time. And you've already brought out the two pieces I plan to play from this album. So let's talk first about the title work on the album, Lunique, which is a sarabande. Can you explain what makes it so unique? Absolutely. This begins as a very noble, grave French sarabande, so of course, three, four time, with emphasis on the second beat of the measure. However, in the second part of the piece, there are two episodes where we are suddenly two times quicker, so little groups of three, eight time instead of three, four, And this would be what makes it unique, although I think already the marvelous lyricism, the somewhat tortured chromatic quality of the piece already makes it quite unique. Great. Well, let's hear that then. This is Sarabande Lunique from Huitième, or Eighth Ordre for Harpsichord by François Couperin, performed on his new album by Jory Vinegar. Thank you. 
Well, if you thought that movement we just heard was rather special, you're right. It's titled Lunique, or Sarabande Lunique, by Francois Couperin, as performed by Jory Vinegar on his new album, which is actually titled after that piece, Lunique. It's all music of Francois Couperin. And now we're going to come to the last work on the album. It's the concluding work of the eighth order of harpsichord pieces of Francois Couperin. And it's a Pasakai, which Julien Dubruc describes as a masterpiece in the program notes. Uh, what makes it such a masterpiece? I don't want to say what doesn't make it a masterpiece. <laughs> we have a work of a somewhat monumental structure. So we have a Pasakaya en rondo. That's to say the first eight-measure theme, which is already of tremendous nobility with an ascending chromatic type of figure, so a very unusual ostinato form. This is alternated with eight different episodes, ranging from lyric to brilliant to extremely uh, pathetic. So it is one of the great achievements in French Baroque keyboard music. And just from structural point of view, Julien notes it's a rondo with eight couplets and lasting 120 measures. How does that compare to the other pieces? On a much larger scale, Couperin does not often use this passacaglia or chacon form. There is a chacon in a double meter, which I think possibly appears in the second order. And then there is a very famous Pasakaya Lamphibi, which appears, I believe, in the 24th order in A major and is also most unusual with uh, changes of meter, and not to mention uh, Les Dominos, Les Folies Francaises, which is, uh, I don't remember in which order this is, but another very unusual Pasakaya. So this type of work inspires Couperin to push the boundaries. Well, since it is, in fact, about twice the length of most of these pieces, uh, we're going to hear the second half of the mm. Pasakai, the concluding work of these three orders on the album. And once again, our soloist is Jory Vinegar. Thank you. 
You just heard the concluding portion, the second half of Pasakai, the concluding piece in the Huitième Ordre, or Eighth Order or Suite of Music for Harpsichord by François Couperin from a new album comprising three of these suites. It's titled L'Unique, Harpsichord Music of François Couperin, and the performer is Jory Vinegar, who's my guest on this podcast. So now that we're coming to the end of it, it's time to ask Jory, what's next for you? I'm very excited to be participating in another project of French music, and this is performances of the operatic masterwork Scylla et Glocus by Jean-Marie Leclerc. This should be a favorite of Rachel Barton Pine because, of course, Leclerc is one of the first truly great composers for the violin, and he left one splendid opera, one of the great examples of the French tragédie lyrique. I'll be assisting and playing harpsichord, with a wonderful conductor, Nicholas McGeegan, and his Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra, four performances in San Francisco in the third week of April, followed by two performances at the Opéra Royale de Versailles. This is very exciting. And I go on, of course, to various recitals, a few performances of Goldberg Variations at the Festival of Perigord Noir in France, I will be looking forward at the end of the year to my conducting debut with the Seattle Symphony, conducting Messiah in December, a work which is becoming more and more of my repertoire as I've just conducted four performances with the wonderful, wonderful St. Paul Chamber Orchestra this past December. So it's an exciting year. Wow. Well, at the end of these classical Chicago podcasts, we always like to ask what makes Chicago's music scene unique. And since this is an album devoted specifically to music of the Baroque period, I'm going to ask you what makes Chicago's early music scene so special and different from that in other cities. We have passionate players of this music. This is not a terribly new phenomenon, but there seem to be a number of individuals who have pushed forth performance of Baroque music in Chicago, whether it's David Schrader, of course, a friend of mine who is also recorded for CD, whether it's Rachel Barton Pine, who has devoted so much of her brilliant career to historic performance, whether it's groups like Haymarket Opera, with whom I've performed extensively during my time in Chicago. We have wonderful, passionate musicians here in Chicago. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jory. It's been a pleasure talking about this really wonderful album. I hope people will check this out, Lunique, harpsichord music of Francois Couperin. It's just a very beautiful sound, and giving the instrument such a wonderful sound on the album, I have to give credit to Sadie Records' wonderful engineer, Bill Malone. I love the sound. Bill is an absolute treasure. Bill, thank you very much for capturing this sound for me. Well, thank you, Jory. This has been another Classical Chicago podcast from Sadie Records.